Let's pray. Heavenly Father, reform us. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up in a time and a place where if your toy got broke, you didn't just throw it away, order a new one, and expect Amazon to deliver it within two days. Nope, there was only one hope if I broke my toy. Take it to mom or dad, hold it up, tears running down my cheeks, and say, can you fix it? Sometimes they would say, yes, no worries, I'll have it back to you this afternoon. Other times they would say, I'm sorry, there's no fixing this. As the old wide world of sports used to say, it was either the uh, thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. So welcome to Reformation Sunday. Most of us recognize the brokenness of our world. And in our more honest moments, we recognize the brokenness in our own lives. When that brokenness gets to the point where we can no longer function, there's only one hope. We hold it up before God with tears streaming down our eyes and say, can you fix it? So what questions do you have for God? If you could sit down and do a 60 minutes or 2020 style interview with God, what questions would you ask? Let's make it a little harder. You can only ask him one question, just one. What would it be? Our culture has forgotten the difference between a question and a statement. Somebody stands up after they do something and they say, any questions? And somebody raises their hand and they go on for 15 or 20 minutes. There's not a question mark in sight. It wasn't a question. It was simply an editorial. I found a lot of my prayers lately are kind of like that. They're heading in that direction. And I really need to do something about it. The truth is, we are our own worst enemies. We choose terrible, hurtful things. We spend way too much time trying to justify them, talking about them, explaining them, rather than asking, why did I do that? And, by the way, is there any way to fix it? You've heard this before, but it bears repeating. I do not love my children or grandchildren equally. It would be very unfair to them if I did, because they are not only unique, unreproducible, and peculiar miracles of God, but they are also unique, peculiar, and unreproducible in their sins and their failures. If I tried to teach them all the same, it wouldn't work. You see, I love them for who they are, not who I want them to be or not who the world expects them to be. You know, when you read the stories in the Bible, you realize God did not treat Moses, Abraham, Ruth, Jacob, Rahab, David, or Paul the same. He saw each one with the specific gifts, time, talent that he created them with. He also saw their own particular sins and doubts and weaknesses, and he met them where they were. God did not sit down on top of this hugely, impossibly high mountain and say, you know what, when you're good enough, when you are holy enough, when you are strong enough, when you are smart enough that you can get up here, then I'll talk to you, but not before. No, God met them where they were. In the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by God's command, so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. Now, while I know that this passage is specifically about God's creating power and ex nihilo creation, it led me to a very important truth. The things you see happening in my life, both the good and the bad, are often the result of things that you cannot see. Which means if you really want to know why I am what I am or why I did what I did, you're going to have to ask me. You may not want to hear the answer, but at least you'll know the truth. 
You see, if you want to know why the sky is blue or how a bumblebee flies or how old the Grand Canyon is, you can ask God. How many different colors are there? And what's at the bottom of the ocean? And what is the absolute furthest star away? You can ask all that. And as long as you keep it existential and superficial, you can find out all sorts of cool things in your interview with God. But you're not going to get the answer to the question that really matter, like the meaning of life. Why is there sin? And what happens when I die? And perhaps most importantly, can you fix me? The truth is painful. And a lot of people would rather live in blissful ignorance than deal with that. You know, when Jesus said the truth will set you free, I'll be honest. For some of us, that actually scares us more than the pain that we know we'll go through. Because if we know the truth, we no longer have any excuses. I love talking to people who believe in evolution. They point out that Darwin disproved creationism and proved, among other things, the survival of the fittest. And this is where it gets fun, because if they actually believe it, I mean, not just say they believe it or or they're regurgitating what somebody told them, but they actually believe it, then they acknowledge responsibility for everything that is wrong in the world. They actually support the extinction of species, and they accept that there is no purpose in life except evolving. Now, they can try to argue, but there really isn't much they can say, because if survival of the fittest is true, if you don't survive, well... It's the way things must be. I personally think that's rather depressing. If all creation is a cosmic accident, then we're on one of those kiddie rides where the steering wheel is disconnected and you can spin it all you want, but the ride's going to go where the ride's going to go. You know, according to Darwin, there are lots of things on this earth that don't deserve to be here, and they actually need to die because they are not fast enough, smart enough, or good enough. They must cease to exist or evolve into something better, which, by the way, because it's going to be different, it's not going to be the same, they might as well cease to exist. The final word in evolution is, if you are not the best, then you are nothing. Evolutionists have no room for brokenness or reformations. Now, the book of Hebrews says, by faith, believers see the exact same world that everybody else does. All of its pain and problems, failures and tragedies, and yet, And yet, we reach an entirely different and far more hopeful answer because faith offers the hope of a reformation. See, the book of Hebrews says, by faith, by faith we see this. As believers, we understand everything through faith. Faith shows us that the madness and the lostness and everything that's torn apart and broken that exists both around us and in us is not the last truth that will be spoken about us. Such things are the penultimate truth. It's the next to the last truth. And by the way, it's only the last truth that matters. The last word spoken, because that's the word that's going to declare our forever. Faith is the eyes and the ears of the heart. Psalm 100 declares, Yahweh is God, He made us, and we are His. You know, by faith, we understand that we're the creation of God. But far more importantly, we hear the words that God spoke after He created everything. See, after each day, he said, it's good. But when he got to the end and he created us and everything was before him, he said, it is very good. God's design was for us to live in peace, dwell in his light, to love and be loved. Now, since things aren't that way, it means something got very, very broken. So back to my evolutionary friends. The question I put before them is a question that I must also ask myself. Am I willing to acknowledge responsibility for everything that's wrong in the world? 
Now, I can get all existential and make a long speech which neither confirms nor denies. Or I can do like my counselor friends are. So you're asking me to acknowledge responsibility for everything that's wrong in the world. How does that make you feel? Or I can just say, yeah, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. Some of my sin I know. Some remains hidden from me. God, forgive me. Now, why would I do such a thing? I mean, isn't that kind of confession bad for my self-esteem? Isn't it detrimental to my power of positive thinking? Only if it is the last truth about me, which by God's grace, it is not. The church is broken because the people that make up the church are broken. And before we think, by the way, that being a church person makes us better than those who aren't, you know, the divorce rate among believers is about the same as non-believers. So is the percentage of things like mental illness, fractured relationships, and significant money problems. Just because we know what is right doesn't mean we have the ability to do what is right, which is why we are always in need of a reformation. In John's Gospel, it says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, first, we know Jesus was speaking to those who believed in him. When the church tries to apply God's word to those who don't believe, it's almost comical. You can't ask people who are not followers of Jesus to act like they're followers of Jesus. It's not going to work. How do I know that? Because you can't even ask believers to act like believers, because that doesn't always work. Second, most people who say they're searching for the truth aren't. They already know the truth. They are searching for something else that isn't as complicated, painful, or as hard to accept. In other words, they're looking for a truth that they like. Third, freedom only comes through surrender. But surrender does not mean giving up. Now, if we need proof that some things never change, this verse is it. The people Jesus is talking to, and remember, it says that they're people who believe in him. When he offers them freedom, their response is, what are you talking about? We've never been slaves to anybody. And they actually say this with a straight face, with all the Roman legions walking by and all the coins in their pocket having the image of Caesar on them. Freedom only comes through surrender. But remember, surrender doesn't mean giving up. Surrender is about accepting reality. It's looking around and seeing the Roman soldiers, knowing all the coins in your pocket have Caesar's image. And that's accepting that things in that world are broken. For us, it's about, sect, it's about accepting that before COVID, our world and our life was broken. And our world and our life is going to be broken even after COVID is long gone. And as much as we'd like to blame political parties or history or them, whoever them is, we can't. This world is broken because we're broken. You know, if we can come to that simple understanding, a truth more painful than we often want to bear is going to be placed before us. But that same truth is something that Jesus says has the power to set us free. And then we have the possibility of freedom and hope. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that when my kids went through that why stage, you know, where everything they say is why, and then when you answer, they say why, and they just keep saying why. I'd answer the same way 10 times, but then my sarcastic nature would take over because I'd grown tired of them asking why. And so the next time they said why, I would say blue. Or the answer to the ultimate question, 42. Or chicken, leaving my children very confused. I'm terrible about that. But you know what? I've changed. Why is no longer scary or meaningless. 
It makes me think, and sometimes I realize the answer that I give, no matter how many times I might give it, may not be the truth. See, it may be what the people want to hear. It may be what I want to hear. It may be what I hope is true. But it also may not be the truth. And if someone keeps asking why, I have to keep working through it by asking myself why until I arrive at the truth and am willing to accept it. As people of faith, we are expected to ask God why. And by the way, we're expected to ask Him why about everything. You see, faith seeks to understand. And it is through a complex game of hide-and-seek that our faith gets formed. Our faith, given by God, is shaped through experiences and teaching, comedy and tragedy, failure and success. And as understanding is forged, faith grows stronger. And we actually ask more questions, not less. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, nailed 95 theses to the door of the church. Now, these theses were questions, not statements. He wanted a debate. There were things that just didn't add up. Important things about eternity and salvation and faith and God. And as he asked all the people that were responsible, he said, why? He couldn't get an answer that agreed with what the Bible said. Oh, all those in authority were saying one thing, but the Bible was saying something else. And he was looking to reconcile this because he had this anfectum, this, this struggle within his heart that said, I want to know the truth, not just a truth, not a simple truth, not even a truth that makes me feel good, but the truth, even if it's going to be painful. See, Luther read the Bible. And remember, that means that he had to know Latin, Greek, and Hebrew because those were the only languages the Bible came in back then, which meant the average person, first of all, number one, was illiterate, so they couldn't read any language. And number two, if they were going to read the Bible, they had to have some sort of an advanced degree. So they only knew what people told them the Bible said rather than knowing it for themselves. As Luther read, he discovered it was written by imperfect people writing about holy experiences with God. They weren't holy, but God was. They were imperfect, yet God, when God came into their life, it was amazing because the stories were about God working in those people, through those people, and sometimes in spite of those people in order to accomplish His work and His will. And when it was all said and done, the people knew that God had used them to change the world by first changing them. The Word of God led to a personal and a community reformation. Now, if there is one truly Lutheran question, it's, what does this mean? This is a question we cannot ask only once. Faith drives us to question after question after question. Because if we have doubts, we want answers. If we are struggling, we want to be drawn closer to the heart of God. And the way to do that is to know Him even better. If we are lost, we want to be found. If we are doing well, we want to be made uncomfortable so that we don't just sit where we're at but rather move closer and closer to God and His love. We know life was created to have meaning. We know humanity is responsible for all of the pain and the heart and the suffering and the loss that's here. We know we aren't smart enough, fast enough, strong enough, or good enough for Darwin. But that doesn't stop God from loving us and pulling us close to Himself. Jesus tells the religious leaders, if they want hope and freedom, they must continue in His Word. God knew our hearts and our struggles, and that's why He gave us His Word. I am often surprised by what I find in the Bible. I mean, there are such rich treasures and answers to my questions. By the way, a lot of the times I discover answers to questions that I hadn't asked or was afraid to ask. God answered them anyway. There is great wisdom. And by the way, there's some things in the Bible that just cause you to say, wow. 
I guarantee if you read his word, you're going to find someone in the Bible who understands you, who lived what you're living, who's asking the questions you're asking, who's going through what you're going through. And you see, God gave you that person so that you would understand he understands you. And God loved and used you and all of those people in order to make a difference and change the world. See, God doesn't love you the same as he loves everybody else. He loves you because you are you. He loves you because you're not everybody else. He loves you because you are unique, peculiar, and unreproducible. He won't let your sins and failures and pains be the last word about you. It turns out you are and always have been God's reformation project. A project, by the way, that he is all in on. We are no longer children, but let's face it, some things never change. We hold up our life and our world and all the other broken things to God and we say, can, can you fix it, God? You know, it was St. James who said, you have not because you ask not. And there we learn that what our old high school teacher said just might be true when he said, there is no such thing as a stupid question. Now, by the way, I can actually think of a few questions that really are kind of stupid, but there really aren't any stupid questions when you are truly seeking an answer that's gonna make a difference in your life, in your family, in your community, in your nation, and your world. Because God's last word to us is always yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.